Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today, we're going to taste some broth from the cauldron. It's made by a beautiful shamanic priestess, Caradin Fallingstar, and it's a book that is a transformational soup here where we find ourselves at the intersection of hope and loss. Um, It's a wisdom journey through everyday magic. Uh, And there is magic every day if if only we can see it. The book Broth from the Cauldron is to be published next week on May 12th by Spark Press. It's a privilege to read an advanced copy and to be here with Caradwen, the witch and its author. Hello, Caradwen. Hello, Diane. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's delightful. You're in Marin County, California at 8 a.m. Bravo for you. That's that's brave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, hope, we'll hope my brain is up to the task. I'm not a morning person. Oh, well, you, you can do this intuitively, I feel sure. Um, we, I was taking a look at your Facebook page, and there's a, a lovely quote there. Magic happens when you don't give up. Even though you want to, the universe always falls in love with a stubborn heart. Um, and that's from the Book of Prosperity that you posted. And I, I just love that. And I think it's appropriate for our time. We love having you here on the last supermoon of 2020. Um, and I just want to give our listeners a flavor of your book because it's quite incredible. Broth from the Cauldron is a magical memoir. Um, and I was clearing out my library as a COVID-19 quarantine activity. And I found an old version of Aesop's fables that I had as a kid. And um, this kind of was reminiscent of that. There were just beautiful stories with a kind of um, punchline of wisdom at the end. And it's very grounded. Um, I want to give listeners the flavor of your words, because unlike most um, storytellers, you really do draw us around the fire, uh, the campfire. And it's quite invitational. So here's Caradwin um, speaking. Stories simmer in our minds often for years. They can be nourishing and delicious as soup. They can be as potent as medicine. So scoot your seats a little closer. Hold out your bowls. I've been brewing this hodgepodge for 40 years and it's ready now. Have a little broth from the cauldron. Um, Thank you for the invitation, Caradwen. I really do feel like we are sitting around the campfire. Your stories are anecdotal and fun and stream of consciousness. Um, You had this very uh, precise and practical vision from the very start, right? You you wrote and said, I want to be a witch someday, not Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a little kid, uh, apparently my grand, my doting grandmother was writing down, you know, many of my first sentences. And when she died, we found this little book that she had still kept of all my little sayings when I was small, and uh, and every other thing was about witches, which really cracked me up. And uh, and, and my mother uh, was showing me this, and she says, "See, you were always like this. 
We never encouraged you in the slightest. <laughs> it's said, great. Yeah, it's so true, Mom. It's not your fault. That that yeah that that was all true. true. That was all too true. Um, and and this, but I I love the I love that you were always very practical. Not on Tuesday, but someday <laughs> I want to be a witch. <laughs> um, and, and, and you became. Yeah, one of these days. But I, I think, um, you know, you, you had these very interesting uh, methods for um, staving off meltdowns with your siblings as the oldest. You became a Shahrazad at an early age, a storyteller. Um, so as soon as there was going to be a crisis, you divert it by diverting them with a story. And it, it seems as though you've come back to this inner child as a storyteller here. It's very... Um, it's very much like a um, a wonderful um, plumbing the depths diversion for us right now. I'd recommend it as a guide oh. for getting through this um, for getting through this pandemic. You've written. Oh, um, thank you. No, it's 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 really quite a wonderful deep dive. Um, you've written three novels. Um, you call them posthumous autobiographies. Uh, because you feel as though you were called to them through past life experiences. This book, Broth from the Cauldron, is this life, strictly this life. Um, and it's, it's, I would say, about witchcraft, but there's also a human story interwoven, and that's the beauty of it. But do you want to just mention your three previous novels? I find them to be fascinating sounding. Yes, sure. Um, the first one is... Yeah, yeah, The, the Heart, Heart of the, of the Fire, Fire, which is set in the uh, 16th century, about witchcraft, and it's set in 16th century Scotland. And uh, that was that was the first one. It was the one that was the most, uh, you know, kind of pushing at my consciousness throughout my life was the kind of unfinished business of, of, of that time period that I needed to explore. And it's, it's really become a bit of a pagan classic. It's sold over 20,000 copies and... Uh, well you know, it's, uh, something that really, if you think you might have, if you relate to to the witchcraft thing at all, if that's something that calls to you, then that particular book is probably going to take you on your own journey um, into into the past. Uh, the other two books uh, are the White as Bone, Red as Blood series, uh, White as Bone, Red as Blood, The Fox Sorceress, and White as Bone, Red as Blood, The Storm God. These two are set in 12th century Japan, another life that I had, and it was uh, the conflict between these two clans who were battling for control of the throne, one of which has the red as their color, and the other one has the white, kind of like the War of the Roses in, in England um, mm-hmm. during a similar time period, really. So those, those, I those, always that's knew- one that you know, I was just going to say, very few people in the Western world know very much about um, that period of Japanese history, but it's kind of the rise of the samurai. It's an extremely fascinating period. It's totally fascinating. And the, you know, the power, the power game of the samurais was really, I mean, it's been captured, I think, in Chronicles later than that, but you've gone to like a very point of origin. Um, the Heart of the Fire, I knew, I always knew you were an interesting person with, I don't really, I mean, know that many people who have been in 12th century Japan and 16th century Scotland. But, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to take the trip with you. The, the Heart of the Fire, I mean, that, I, I dug up another book that I, I saw on my um, bookcase. It was Fire in the Head about um, Celtic, uh, 
yeah, a Celtic spirit in shamanism. And um, I thought to myself, well, that's not as interesting as Heart of the Fire. <laughs> Go to Heart of the Fire. So um, promising reads. I'm, I'm glad. Yes, I have been smitten, um, Caradwin, from your writing. I've been smitten about this subject, um, especially because you approach it in such a, a down-to-earth way. There's really no other way of describing it. Um, and you mention it sort of as an esoteric thing. I wonder if you think that witchcraft is gaining traction right now um, because people are seeking, they're looking for things, and, you know, people are identifying their spirit animal and things like that. Do you think that it's being magnetized now? Yes, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, that's, that's shown by, you know, people who do studies, you know, there's now over uh, 1.2 million people who identify as witches in the United States. That's a rather large number of people. It's more than identify as, say, Presbyterian. So uh, wow. witchcraft is becoming a very popular uh, means to, uh, for people to explore their own spirituality. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think one is that it honors the masculine and the feminine equally, that there's uh, people are very hungry for the sacred feminine. There's a a sense that that's something that's deeply missing in our culture. So bringing back the goddess, bringing back that archetype of of the sacred feminine is very, very crucial for us now. Uh, It's also something that uh, is very short on dogma. In other words, there's not a lot of um, things that you have to believe to call yourself a witch or to call yourself a pagan. It's basically saying the earth is sacred. And if you can get down with the idea that the earth is sacred and that all things are interconnected, well, that's something that science tells us, that all things are interconnected. It's not something where you have to give up your intelligence to have a spiritual path. And, you know, as someone who's very rational and very intelligent myself, I I need something like that where, yes, I want to have my spiritual side, but I don't want to have to believe a lot of things that I simply can't believe in order to get there. You've burst open a lot of dogma, actually, in the book, which I thought was very healthy. Uh, What you're speaking of, the sacred earth and the uh, archetype of the goddess, I mean, these are ideas whose time has come. And um, as you say, you know, it's more about an internal um, journey of finding your own way uh, in terms of uh, shamanism and witchcraft. We're going to... um, just uh, for a second back up, because people will want to know if you emerged full-blown as a witch. Um, and, and I'm going to just give a little biographical, um, you know, history. Um, you're welcome to chime in at any point, but uh, I'll read from what you've uh, said to us as an opener in the in the book, uh, Broth from the Cauldron. Caradrin Fallingstar is a shamanic witch who did have a traditional background. She attended Beloit College and received a degree in English literature and composition. And she has a master's degree in English literature from UCLA. Um, Fallingstar pursued a career as a journalist in Los Angeles, writing mainly for the alternative press, not coincidentally on feminism, feminist sexuality, and related matters. So during this time, Caradwin, you encountered a Wiccan pioneer, Susanna Budapest, right? That's correct. And she was arrested in Los Angeles for fortune-telling from tarot cards, from reading tarot cards. This is a little unthinkable right now um, in our (laughs) culture, thank goodness. Um, But you interviewed her, right? And that led to something. Um, yeah, I actually went to her trial. I attended, it was a four-day trial, so I attended her trial. 
I mean, it was, it was still rather striking in 1975 that a witch would be on trial for fortune-telling. It seemed um, pretty, pretty strange, uh, pretty regressive. So, um, so yeah, it was a very interesting uh, process to, to watch the, the wheels of justice sort of stumbling in this, um, in this rather bizarre um, pursuit, this rather archaic pursuit. Right. Well, we can hear your skepticism there in your voice of the wheels of justice. Um, but right after that, this was a blessing because you uh, then found your own coven, Colisti, in 1975 and began publishing poetry and literature under your craft name, Caradwen Fallingstar. Uh, Caradwen comes from the Celtic and it's the goddess of rebirth uh, and transformation. So what could be more apropos to this book, which is transformation, transformational and transformation soup, I would say. Um, let's go back to some basic definitions, because in case not everyone's literate in um, Wicca or witchcraft, you s- say this and cite this very well in the book, uh, Broth from the Cauldron. It comes from the root of willow. The willow tree is flexible, bending with the wind and not breaking. Um, magic, too, is flexible. I'm reading here from Broth of the Cauldron. Uh, cauldron. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's quite similar, actually. Uh, flexible uh, magic, and it moves with the flow of energy. Um, and witchcraft is known as the twisted path, not because it's perverse necessarily, but because like lightning moving through the sky or a river carrying out its course, energy follows the path of least resistance. So it's it's poetic, Um it's poetic writing also, Caridwen. I'm wondering now, do you still teach? You say you've been a Wiccan priestess teaching shamanic classes since 1976. Um, are you still teaching? I'm teaching much less. Um, I, for many years, I taught a year-long uh, Wiccan apprenticeship program. And then I had also often, for many of those classes, a second advanced year uh, that I taught where I would have, you know, a group of usually 12 to 15 people who committed for a year of kind of intensive study. And then, of course, I've always done, you know, weekend workshops and evening workshops and things like that it's, along with. But now I'm getting older and I'm, um, I'm really focusing more on my writing. You know, I have another memoir that I'm hoping to publish about two years from now that is mostly uh, written. And... Um, so I'm, I'm working on finishing that up and yeah, trying to trying to get a little more of my my writing out there. But I do love the teaching. It's always been uh, I, I meet so many so many powerful people, um, often powerful young people. Though sometimes I've, when I was younger, I often worked with people older than myself. But as I've gotten older, they've mostly been younger, and that's uh, it, it's very dear to my heart to to bring other people along on their path of power. I love midwifing people into their own uh, their own power. Absolutely. And you're speaking to maybe more people through your book. I think there is some midwifery involved in the book. I personally um, resonated with several, several subjects and, you know, felt a very um, energetic pull towards a better self, a kind of a higher self or a sense of, um, you know, a more enlightened position. I think it's very, very transformational. 
Um, but I loved your um, the course that you mentioned, the year-long apprenticeship. It was called the Hogwarts for Grown-Ups. Um, and, of course, I, too, have noticed that subtle, not-so-subtle change where people used to be much younger, uh, much older, and now they're much younger. I don't know how all of that happens, but it's happened um, <laughs> over quite a long overnight. Uh, but I, um, I'm delighted. I wondered very, uh, very much in this day of being connected technologically, do you think that it's possible to teach digitally? Is that something that is even conceivable? Yeah, I think for, I think many parts are. I know I've I've thought about it. I'm a little intimidated about a lot of what I do. Um, some of the more powerful things that I do is to put people into trance states to go on shamanic journeys. And uh, often, in fact, one of the things that we that we do, I don't just lead people individually, but in my group, we go into group trance. In other words, everyone goes into trance at the same time, and we all journey to the same place and start having the same experiences spontaneously together which we're talking the whole time it's happening, so we know what's going on. Uh, and we, we pursue various forms of uh, enlightenment uh, in, this, in this way, and it's really quite amazing. And it's something I, I don't think could be reproduced digitally. Um, even just doing any kind of trance work when I'm not present with the person feels a little hazardous to me, that I'm putting somebody in a very deep state of consciousness and I want to make sure they can get back out again. I want to make sure I can, I can pull them out of this, um, this state of mind and they don't just sort of uh, drift off. Um, right. So, we so yeah, my sense of responsibility makes, it a little, makes me a little nervous about trying to do some of this really deep, uh, powerful work through, you know, through the medium of, of, the, uh, of the computer world. Uh, some of it you could obviously do, you know, pretty easily. Um, certainly, teaching people basic spell work and things like that, I, I could definitely do work. that way. But um, but some of the oh. deeper stuff would be harder. Yes, and we um, we are going to pause here in a couple minutes, but I do like the idea of wanting to be retrieved from uh, such a journey. I have not experienced a shamanic trance. I love the idea that everyone's experiencing a common experience and can talk about it throughout. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, the sense of connectivity through digital communications and clearly psychics work by telephone over, you know, airwaves. So it's it's it is interesting, um, but to your credit, being the responsible person that you are, I can understand how this would be uh, kind of iffy um, that we might not be able to go out there and be promised um, a return ticket. So um, appreciating that, but you know some of the very basics. Um, you know, what is a shaman? You know, the dictionary definition, a member of certain traditional societies who acts as a medium between the visible world and the invisible spirit world um, and who practices magic or sorceries for purposes of healing, divination and control over natural events. Well, I'm here to tell you from reading Caradwin's book that you're not an advocate of controlling natural events. On the contrary, right? You, uh, um, so uh, we're going to take a pause here, I think, um, in a little less than a minute. But Caradwin, your views on trying to control events? Oh, uh, you know, the, yes. I mean, I, I think, again, it, it's kind of a cultural thing that, our culture is very much about control, and it's true that witches sometimes laugh and call magic 
coincidence control. Um, but it's a matter of trying to get the coincidences to weave together in the direction you want. Of course, we all want to have control over our lives. And unfortunately, sometimes we want to control other people's lives, too. Um, but uh, there, there's a, um, in real magic, there's, there's a weaving between control and surrender, where you're, you're diff- trying to push the universe in the direction you'd like it to go. But you're very much aware that the universe may have a bigger plan in mind. Exactly. Uh, that isn't exactly the same as, as what your smaller mind um, has imagined. So there's, right. there's that um, awareness that we're very small in the great flow of things and right. that we're very privileged to be able to participate in it and that sometimes these magical, amazing things happen um, because the universe wanted to play with you or to show you something fun right. or who knows why. So Who knows so why? The, I uh, yeah, I do. There's, there's a yeah. mystery, you know, and surrendering to that mystery is, is part of the beauty of it. We're going to surrender to a commercial break here. Um, the mystery, I love it. And we're going to come back and examine the difference between mastery and mystery and surrendering to it. Don't go away, but we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion. Representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Caridwyn Fallingstar. A joy to be speaking with you, Caridwyn. And before the break, we were talking about mastery versus mystery, how life might have bigger plans than we do, and maybe some of our plans are just way too small. Um, but, you know, we like to think, nonetheless, that, you know, through our egos that we'll somehow gain mastery. And you say that some people do enter Wiccan or witchcraft with this goal in mind, but that you end up taking them on more of a journey of surrender. And you write in the book that everything, animal, people, trees, are capable of being your teacher. Uh, and that's the... Um, basis of the philosophy that things and people and animals are here to teach us about the respect for the earth, um, about ourselves. And I wondered um, in that in that grand scheme of things, 
how you thought or whether you thought the current pandemic was actually a teacher that we should be kneeling in front of. Yes, definitely. I think uh, Jane Goodall, you know, probably said it the best. She said that, you know, this pandemic teaches us how we, that we need to have more respect for animals and more respect for nature because where this and where so many of these illnesses come from is they're jumping from animals to humans when humans are consuming those animals and that um, especially when they're kept in, you know, very brutal conditions as they are in the, uh, what they call the wet markets of China. Um, you know, it's not an accident that many of these illnesses, the SARS and the COVIDs are coming and the mer- you know, they're coming from that and that we need to have more respect and not to be plundering through the wilderness to capture all these wild animals and consume, consume them when there simply aren't enough of these species left to reproduce and to have uh, the life that they want to have. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't ever eat animals. You know, we, were, we evolved eating them, and so it's difficult, especially for a female body, to stay healthy without some meat. But we don't have to treat them badly. We don't have to eat the things that are endangered. We don't have to factory farm and keep animals in small pens. But these are ways in which illness comes from them to us. And it is, uh, you know, it is a karmic uh, sort of a warning that says, hey, you can't, you know, what you do to the earth, you do to yourself. We cannot abuse the other beings of this earth without abusing ourselves. And that's, that's something that we very much need to learn. I mean, the other thing about the pandemic is just telling us our life is not sustainable. There are too many humans on the planet. Um, we're, we're vastly overpopulated. We can't sustain that. And, you know, if we don't limit the numbers, then nature will limit the numbers. She will find a way to, <laughs> you know, kill off enough of us so that balance is restored. So we're we're calling the herd, so to speak, and there's also the dimension of consumerism, you know, the way we consume, um, which then ties into what you were talking about, kind of karma in motion with the lack of sustainability uh, and the fact that animals are losing their habitats, um, you know, that then animals are stressed and become ill and then are carriers of disease. And people don't seem to understand these very fundamental things. I think it's marvelous that you're saying it. Of course, Jane Goodall has dedicated her life to preserving um, species of animals and their habitats. It's really a wake-up call if we're willing, right? Um, it's something that, um, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why I wondered if you would offer yourself as a teacher, um, you know, either digitally or otherwise, because, um, you know, this is the vision. This is the kind of connect. We need to connect these dots. Um, we need to... Right. Right. Hear these voices, um, you know. So I'm I'm glad that it's in your book. Um, there are several wonderful chapters on animals and the way that they do speak to us if we're able to listen. Um, and I think that you know, there the, the the sense of them being teachers. It's also a change in dynamic, right? Of men and women being the dominant. You know, we're not necessarily 
the dominant, um, you know, where you were talking about at the top of the food chain, right. which was which was hilarious as well. Um, that brought me back to that that top of the food chain comment was from a child that you were talking to, and children are part of this vision of. Um, not just innocence, but they're more connected, right, to their intuition. They're experiencing in a much more direct, unmitigated way. Um, And you talk in the book, the younger self is the awareness of the right hemisphere, the part that fascinated, that's fascinated by images and sensations, that thinks in circles and spirals rather than straight lines, the part that it's in, that's entranced by metaphor and bored by logic. Children dwell almost entirely in the world of fairy, where the id and the unconscious reign supreme. Magic is second nature to them. So I wondered, is it, is it a recovery to, to a child, childlike realm when you're taking people back through these trances? Um, yeah, sometimes, you know, we, we do things that, again, to the outer eye may seem kind of childish um, because it is playful, you know, that we set up an altar, for instance, and we put things on the altar that correspond to what we are wanting, you know, that if you were doing a love spell, you would put the things that, that say love to you on the altar. That might be, say, white and red roses. It might be, you know, this picture or that picture. It might be uh, any number of things because it would be idiosyncratic to you. What is love to you? Um, but, the you know, and some of our rituals, you know, we dance around the maypole, and that's certainly a very playful thing to do. And yet, as we're doing it and weaving those ribbons together, we're reweaving the web of life. And we're thinking about what we're reweaving, how we're, how we're putting the world back together again. You know, that's a typical shamanic uh, goal, is to restore balance and to restore harmony. So we're working on those things, and part of that is restoring the harmony between the two sides of our brain. And it's wonderful that we have you know, all the logic of uh, the left brain. You know, it's a beautiful thing that we have it. And yet, um, without the balance of the right brain, without the balance of the images and the emotions and that sense of the ineffable, uh, then, we, then we fall out of balance. And you can see our culture is so, is so imbalanced. Um, and that that's what we're trying to do is to I always say I'm trying to get the right and left hemispheres of my brain to kiss and make up. <laughs> we're, we're trying to bring those things back together so they can work together, so that men and women can work together. So there's not that hostility um, and that lack of appreciation for the masculine viewpoint and the feminine viewpoint that that these things are that we're meant uh, to cooperate. That our differences are meant to be creative differences uh, that help us work better together. Uh, is, is where we're trying to head to next. Yep, we need both. Um, and the divorce from the right brain to the left brain was brutal. I tell you, I, I really think that, um, you know, we've, we have gotten very kind of schizophrenic. You know, everything is cast into doubt on the right brain, creative, intuitive side, and only logic can prevail. And clearly, 
that um, weaving together, again, that's something symbolic that you're talking about is not just beautiful, but necessary, and our lives might actually depend on it. Um, the shamanic uh, tradition does rely on healers, and I started a little investigation um, prompted by your book on, you know, healers and um, um, Marie-Louise von France, the um, Jungian psychoanalytic uh, thinker was talking about, yes, the healer is typically someone who is wounded, who has been cut open so that they develop the capacity for um, caring uh, and, and empathy for others. And it's also a person who has been able to find their way out. So they've used the intuitive course, which is strictly right brain activity to find a way for themselves and certain practices such as ones that come through um, um, you know Wiccan and such as drumming um, are conducive to finding these ways to come out Um, so we're you know we have dilemmas and how do we find our way out is you know if that's if that's the problem to solve, it seems to me that you're um, offering a kind of a, a, a scenario for people to travel into and see what the possibilities are. Um, you're taking yeah. also mm-hmm. good. You're taking also after indigenous cultures, right? Um, you you have quite an association in the book with um, indigenous cultures and a respect and observation. I'll just read just a passage. They don't use their intelligence to thwart their growth. <laughs> okay, there's a statement because we have used our intelligence to thwart our growth. That's exactly what we were just speaking right. Um, so how do we get in touch with all of this? How do we re- start to relate to what we need to in the natural world and not regard it as scenery, as you put it? Yeah, you know, I think reading books like the one I just published, and like there are so many books out now, there's many resources that just start, start your mind going, oh, wait, there is a different way to look at this. And then, of course, meditation is a fantastic way to drop into that um, that more spacious part of existence. Uh, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of classes that we can take. I really recommend that everybody in this culture get therapy. Really, believe me, if you were brought up in this culture, you're going to need it. <laughs> we're, we're in a completely insane culture. And, and we've normalized this level of insanity that, you, you know, you're really going to need to come to grips with, well... So what did happen with me when I was a kid that I maybe wallpapered over with something a little more rosy, and how am I going to excavate that? Like you know, you say the shaman. You know, one of the things that if if you're talking to other shamans, one of the questions they might ask you is, "When did you die?" Mm -hmm. Because in the traditional shamanic world, um, you you would be put on a path of shamanism by having had a near-death experience. And that that would be pretty much a universal thing that would put you on that path. Um, in our culture, again, because it's uh, there's such tremendous psychological damage within our culture, um, the vast majority of people have had experiences where if they weren't physical near-death experiences, they were spiritual death experiences. For instance, abuse causes a great wound in the child. And again, you're going to have to find some way then not to paper it over and pretend it's not there, 
but to actually, um, you know, use it to build a bridge. And that if there's a if there's a crevasse, if there's a gap in your in your psyche, that's what needs to inspire you. Oh, I'm going to have to build a bridge, or an airplane, or some way of making uh, making the leap from point A to point B. And that again, this is somewhere where the New Age kind of sometimes doesn't really get it doesn't get the whole picture because the New Age wants it all to be yes, yes, it's all good, and we're all cheerleaders, and we're all going to get what we want, and you just have to have the right thoughts. It's like, well, this, yeah. isn't, this isn't the whole thing. You know, the, right. that, that we, we really need the depth, too. We need the dark. We need the shadow. And we're all going to have some of that. And if you are framing the, all of that as a failure, you are missing all the opportunities for wisdom and power and compassion that lie in actually acknowledging your dark and exactly. evolving it. Exactly. And you, you know, I mean, where the scar is formed is the toughest, is the toughest tissue. And you chose this time to write a memoir. I commend you for it because you're sharing your, your experiences, your very personal experiences. When you were a child, um, you were the designated uh, whipping girl of the three children. You um, learned the kind of the hard way that you were the scapegoat for everyone else's or the other two um, through, through their um, antics. You were the one who were, was chosen to be beaten. Um, and you, you found a book. You learned that it was, in, you say, in, in some ways it was a relief that whole tribes of nomads and nobility throughout Europe designated one to be hit as an example to the others. Then my life made sense. There was one in every family. Since punishment kept everyone in line, I was fulfilling a valuable role, making an important contribution to the well-being of the family. I mean, I think here, this conversion of energy, of dark, um, sad, um, painful experience, but as you say, Forget wallpapering it over um, and and bring it to light. And this is something that you have understood yourself um, at that time as being a marked child so that you could outlive the narrative, right? So that you could be able to transcend this uh, narrative. And um, the Mondegreens, the, the spaces that we fill in, that we interpret, right? We t- tell people what Mondegreens are. I thought this was a huge revelation to me. Um, uh, uh, people, uh, Amanda Green is, um, you know, when one thing is said, but a different thing is heard, or you see something, but your brain interprets it as something else. For instance, you know, many, many people listening to Jimmy, the Jimi Hendrix song, Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky, heard it as, Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy. And, and for many people, that was much more mind-blowing that he would kiss a guy, another person than that he was in his hallucinatory state kissing the sky, the S-K-Y. Um, so it's something that you you hear it a different way than it is. But we all have this experience all the time in our communications with each other, where, you know, through the, through the, um, the, the distortion of our own suffering or the distortion of our own upbringing, um, what are, you know, we may hear, for instance, somebody saying something they think is helpful and we hear it as a horrible criticism. And um, and that this is something that we learn in relationship, hopefully, is how to break down that uh, constant misinterpretation 
that we have of what other people are, are saying to us uh, that we then hear um, in this distorted way. It's, 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 a, it's a normal part of being alive, and it's just something we have to keep working on. Right. It's an evolution for sure. And it's dependent upon the narrative that we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? So it's um, an interpretation of words that has to do more with us than it does the sender. This is um, very interesting and um, exploring how to break through this um, is something that your book really um, tackles head on. Um, I want to just uh, remind us that we, we have about a minute to, um, to the next break, but this is Caridwin's first memoir. Um, there is a poet, a Celtic poet, Mikhail O'Sullivan, and I'm not doing his name justice, but he says, for my story is your story is everybody's story. So we thank you, Caridwin, for your bravery in writing your book. It's Broth of from the Cauldron. It's coming out next week, May 12th, from Spark Press. And when we come back in a minute, we're going to understand um, through Caridwin um, accepting changes that have been forced upon us and forging them into something powerful. Don't go away. We'll be right back. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting down with Caridwin Fallingstar, a beautiful name if ever I heard one. Um, and we're talking about shamanism and its contribution potentially now as a vital life force. Um, and we're also um, looking at a from a personal psychology how to break through some of the patterns in our mind that keep us kind of stuck in place, um, as they say, but also with certain kind of views and certain kinds of interpretations that um, could be split wide open and uh, help us retrieve some of our our lost um, vitality and care for the world and for one another. I um, loved this book uh, for several reasons. There were there's there's a very democratic view 
right? This is not a hierarchical system that you're working in, Caridwen. And you talk about yourself even as a teacher, um, as a river guide. You're 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 also on the river, and you're um, you're working with people um, as a teacher and now as an author. Um, but you're taking us on the you're taking us on the ride. Right, right. You know, that's um, yeah. I like that analogy. I say, you know, I don't own the river, um, but I know this stretch of the river really well. And if you come mm-hmm. with me, you're going to spend more time in the boat having fun, and less time in the wa- in the water trying not to drown. <laughs> so, so that's the idea. It's just you know, the, the, uh, a teacher is someone who maybe has a lot of knowledge about something and can help you acquire that knowledge in perhaps the, the least painful way possible. Um, but that, that doesn't make them, yeah, a higher source of, a higher sort of a being. And that, you know, unfortunately people um, in the spiritual world often are presenting themselves as gurus of a sort that requires the person to be part of a cult, that requires them to give up their critical thinking, that requires them to simply take everything the teacher says as being the gospel truth. And this is, um, again, it's a, it's a very dominator sort of a system. You know, it's, it's the very system that I personally am trying to help people break out of and not to reinforce. Um, however, it is also true that it is the best way to make a whole lot of money is to manipulate people. And, and if that right. is your goal, uh, that, that, would, that would be uh, the way to go. Um, my, my son, when he was 11 years old, he said to me, Mom, Mom, you're doing this all wrong. He says, you know, you're, you're not, you're not going to make money doing it this way. You've got to have a guru. And I said, well, but son, I don't want to be a guru. And he says, okay, I'll be the guru. And I was like, oh, wait, you mean you're going to teach the classes? And he says, no, Mom, of course not. You're going to teach the classes. Just every so often, I'll walk through and smile and wave. <laughs> it's like... I'm like, oh my God, who are you? <laughs> but it's really cute. I saw an eleven-year-old can figure this out, right? Yeah, <laughs> we all know how this works. Yeah. But oh boy, do we? How I want to work. Right. It doesn't feed the, the the vision of the world that I have and where I want to go. Right. And where I want to help other people to go. Exactly. Um, I love this anti-guru uh, and also just this sense of not taking things at face value, retrieving your critical thinking. Um, I, I feel as though, um, f- from my own perspective, one of the things that I thought was invaluable in your book was a uh, reference to Juan, uh, Don Juan Carlos Castaneda, um, the passage about petty tyrants, um, that, you know, a petty tyrant can be a boss, a parent, a spouse, um, anyone who holds some power over us. And, of course, what you're talking about in terms of cults, it's somebody who right. wants to earn, get a lot of money or get a lot of power. Um, and, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you really talk about how to diffuse the petty tyrant um, in a way that robs them of energy and also restores our sanity. Um, this is, you know, a nice gift, this piece of, um, you know, understanding that uh, we learn from bad example more potently than good sometimes, and that's your quote, but we reclaim our freedom of thought, of emotional spa- response, and then the petty tyrant has lost power and we've gained it. 
um, you know, valuable stuff here. And the other, the other resonant part for me that I really loved, and there's a, there's a lot of ways of looking at it because there are these kind of um, fables that the um, book is organized into these wonderful storytelling chapters in Broth from the Cauldron, um, is anger. And um, many of us feel angry right now and the frustrations of um, not being able to do anything, not being represented well. Um, and you are insightful here. You say anger is a reorganizing energy. Um, only when it's blocked from its work of releasing and transforming does it become destructive. Um, you talk about how anger is your spirit telling you not to bow to injustice any longer. It's the sacred messenger communicating that something in your life needs transforming. Something has to give. And you've got, you need a change and you've got to stop being stuck. So hurl the puzzle that's baffling you into the air and start over. <laughs> I completely love this. Um, you know, here's something that really resonates with us today, right? You know, what are we going to do with all of this frustration and anger that we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I think, you know, again, that anger is, it's your psyche's way of saying, whoa, something's not right here. Now we need, we need a change. We need to transform something. So to then look for that and say, okay, what is wrong with this picture? Well, unfortunately, in our culture, almost everything is wrong with this picture. So it can feel a little overwhelming, uh, you know, to look at, you know, the leadership in our country is to be angry, uh, to say, oh, this is insane, you know, that we, we literally um, have an insane approach to things uh, rather than, than a sane one. One of the things that's being shown is, you know, this, this ridiculous idea, you know, on the part of some of people who have wealth or, or privilege that, well, health care shouldn't be for everyone. It should only be for those who can afford it. It's like, okay, well, you see how this works out. We're all connected. The person without health care is, is standing next to you at the grocery store, and they're making you sick. And mm-hmm. is this really how you want to live your life? Because you might not be able to live your life much longer if this is how it goes on. So it's, for instance, showing how completely insane it is to be in a society that's supposedly an advanced uh, society and to, ha- and to not have universal health care. It's absurd. Of course we all have to have health care. Of course that has to be a human right. And so seeing what's missing here, we can see how the leadership is missing. That, you know, uh, under, you know, I have a friend who works um, for a company that is making um, the tests and the, and the instruments that evaluate the tests. And, uh, you know, in Britain, you know, the military is building building factories so they can make more of these things so they'll have enough. And here we, can, we have the National Guard. Why aren't we sending them to do this, to build the factories, to make so we can have more tests so everyone can be tested? Then we know when it's safe. It's a, right. it's a very simple thing to do with the political will, but there's not the will to do it. We should be angry about that. Our, our lives are being thrown away mm-hmm. uh, so that other people can be obscenely rich. This it's, has to stop. Um, so, yeah, the, the, listen to the messages and go, oh, okay, this sure makes it clear what isn't working. What can right. we do to make it work? And I'll put in my vote. Please go out and vote. Yes. <laughs> Please make sure that you're registered to vote and that you can vote in November. Um, make sure you haven't been taken off the voting rolls, which is happening in a lot of places. 
and make sure that you uh, you exercise your right to change what needs to be changed. This is a witch speaking, so I want you to all understand that we're not talking about casting a spell and using supernatural powers. This is very pragmatic advice, and um, you'll find more of this very down-to-earth uh, pragmatism in the book, Broth from the Cauldron by Caridwin Falling Star. We are talking about um, the pandemic, and, you know, I observed your um your understanding that everything is a teacher. So right now it looks as though COVID-19, while we will eventually find a vaccine, has been now exposed as the tip of the iceberg in terms of issues that face us, uh, right? Because we have neglected to take care of one another at a very fundamental level. And the crisis, you know, it's these, you know, everyone says this, it's the heartwarming stories on the ground, in the neighborhood, when you're, you know, doing that, you know, food drive, like we're doing here, you know, to, to start to recompense, to start to make amends for these distances that we've created, for these disparities that we've created. And we've got a lot more work to do in that area. Um, you are a gifted storyteller, and you have talked quite a bit about your own um, your own trajectory, and it has included um, sadness, the loss of your husband, um, and I think that that um, that sense of not having um, control over events, and also the insights that you gained from. Um, realizing that you needed to take comfort in maybe ways that you ever not had ever um, thought of before. You talk about loss and you say, lately my tree friend is an old twisted pine whose branches coil off in two different directions. Sometimes I sit with my spine pressed up against the trunk. There in the underworld, I can meditate on how I, like the tree, could survive having my core destroyed, how I could live with the vast void at the center of my heart. And this is such a beautiful passage, Caridwen. I'm sorry that you had to have this experience, but you've given us the keys back into the garden. Um, You've talked about how the lock was around your heart was big and heavy, but the keys to unlock it have turned out to be surprisingly small. Um, this is just a lovely, a lovely reference. And um, how are you finding your way now? We've just got a couple more minutes to go. Yeah. Um, well, you know, loss is something none of us want. We don't want it for ourselves. We don't want it for the people we love. But it is... Again, it's part of life, you know, every, everyone you know is going to die, including you, and that's just how it is, um, and that we need to, you know, somehow come to grips with that and not let a, let, you know, the, the usual way that people cope with this is to not feel very much, to not love as deeply as they could love, to try and keep everything at arm's length so it won't hurt so much when they lose it, but that also means that you never really have it, that you don't give yourself the, the the depth and the joy of having true intimacy. Um, so to when we let ourselves have that, then you know it's going to hurt like heck. Or oh, when we when we lose it, 
that I personally don't regret um, having loved as deeply as I love. I don't regret that at all. Um, I really enjoy uh, my memories of the of the wonderful experiences that I've had, and I'm I'm, I'm certainly you know I think it, it's truly it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved. But yes. some of it is like learning learning to love the smaller things. That, that, that life isn't just about the big ticket items, and right. that. Uh, I know initially I felt kind of bitter about that. It was like I felt like I was having to take a whole bunch of pieces of cloth no bigger than a fingernail and try and, yes. you know, try and sew them together into a quilt. You've done that this. You've how. done, yes, you've, you've actually done this. You've woven a beautiful quilt. We're going to, we've come to the end of our conversation with Kara Dwen. Thank you for all of this positive energy. Um, you say that it's easy to die for love, but living for love for yourself, for another, for life itself is what grows a soul. You can find Kara Dwin on Heart of the Fire. You can find her on Facebook and the book Broth from the Caldwin by Kara Dwin Falling Star. Thank you so much for sharing, Kara Dwin. Be safe and hopeful, Thank you everyone. Thank so much for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.